The New Testament reading is from Matthew 28, 1-17. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for, the, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. So there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, <clears throat> some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken the council, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldier and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. <clears throat> and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The word of the Lord. It's good to be with you on this Easter morning as we look at Matthew's account of the resurrection. And before we, we look at this text, let us, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. We thank you for this hope and this promise that we find here in this text, Father God. And Lord, I do pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to it. Lord, and that you would more fully impress into our hearts, into our hands, into our heads, the truth, the joy, the happiness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in the very name of the risen Christ and the power of his own spirit. Amen. There are two basic reports about the human position, the human condition. We find ourselves in a situation where the happiness, the joy, the peace, the rest, the satisfaction that we seek, it rests ever beyond our grasp. This job, that spouse, this house, that notoriety, this vacation, that car, this publication, that grant, this amount of success, this amount of money. Yes, we seek these things. And even after getting these things over and over and over again and feeling that same deep lack of satisfaction over and over again, the very happiness that we were sure these things were going to provide, we're still right back at it, confident that this time the next thing will be the thing. And no one knows this better than the people who have achieved everything that they've ever wanted. 
Take, for instance, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computers. While his original team wore a t-shirt that said 90 hours a week and loving it, his enthusiasm for what his company started to fade. It was much more muted in a 1996 interview he gave with Wired. He reflects, we're born, we live for a brief instant, and we die. It's been happening for a long time. Technology is not changing it much, if at all. Jobs achieved more than he could ever have imagined. He's one of the most professionally successful people in American history. He changed the face of technology as we know it. He had no lack of wealth and influence. He attained everything he wanted. If anyone should have felt at home in the world, it should have been him. And yet here we have an admission that what we want from life and what life actually is, well, they're not the same thing. Even if you get everything that you think you want, you still don't get what you actually want. Full happiness and joy and satisfaction and flourishing. But what can this mean? Well, again, there are two basic reports about the human condition. Here's one report, and it's expressed by a psychologist who's writing from a perspective that understands the human in merely and only evolutionary terms. It's good to know that feeling bad isn't actually bad. It's exactly what survival of the fittest intended. If satisfaction and pleasure were permanent, there might be little incentive to continue seeking further benefits or advances. If we were truly satisfied, if we actually had the deepest desires of our heart, if something actually delivered the happiness it promised, then we'd give up the competitive edge. We'd stop striving. We'd lay over and let some other species get the best of us, maybe even eat us. We'd stop striving. By this logic, then, the fittest species just is the species that is never satisfied. Even more, the fittest species is the species that is never satisfied, but keeps thinking again and again that the next thing will be the thing that satisfies. The fittest species, then, just is the species with the most restless and inconsolable heart. The fittest species just is the most tragic species. The fittest species just is the human species. This is one report. This is one interpretation of the present human condition. But there's another report, the Christian report, and this is summarized well by C.S. Lewis. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's good. He writes, the Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfactions for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I feel in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
Notice that both reports affirm that no earthly good can provide the deep satisfaction that we seek. On this, they are agreed. Both assume that no job, no romance, no meal, no house, no amount of money, no level of success, nothing that you can earn here or now will give you the full and permanent satisfaction that you seek. This just is their shared baseline. Both reports hold this in common, and deep down, we all know this. And if you don't, just give yourself a few years. These are two reports of our present human condition. And essentially, these just are our two existential options. Nothing in this present world will fully and permanently satisfy you. And so either this world is all there is, and you will be restless and inconsolable until you die, or there is more than this world that we now know, and there truly does await the perfect joy and hope and satisfaction and flourishing that now escapes us. These are two reports. And these are the two reports that we find here in this passage. We find two groups that run from the tomb with two very different, two very distinct reports. We read of one group of the women who come from Jesus' tomb. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. This is the report that Christ has risen from the dead. But what about that other group? And what about their report? Well, this is that of the soldiers guarding the tomb. And of them we read, The chief priest said to them, Tell the people that Jesus' disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And Matthew tells us that the soldiers are offered money to tell this report. They take the money and then they spread this story. And here's the thing. One of these reports has to be true. Either Jesus was raised from the dead, or he wasn't. Either the women and the disciples speak truly when they proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or they lied. Either the soldiers spoke truly about some trickery at the tomb, in this case, the disciples stealing Jesus' body, or, as Matthew claims, they lied. What is the report of the soldiers? There is nothing beyond death. There is no such thing as a resurrection. There is no greater hope that we can look to in this present world. The world that we know it is all there is and all that we can hope for. Whatever it is that we desperately desire and seek and run after will ever escape us. We are the most tragic of species. And yet this is what makes us the fittest of species. Your inconsolable longing that will never be filled just is what makes you human, at least until you die. What is the report of the women? Death is not the final word. Christ has defeated death. There is sure and certain hope in the resurrection to come. God is committed to restoring his creation and bringing his people into perfect loving communion with himself. God is bursting the bounds of the present world by making all things new. There is, in fact, a true and deep and joyful rest for our restless hearts. What is the report of the soldiers? It's good to know that feeling bad isn't actually bad. It's, actually, it's, act, it's exactly what survival of the fittest intended. What is the report of the women? I feel in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. 
And the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. One of these reports is true, and the other is a lie. Either Christ was raised from the dead, and there really is such a thing as human joy and happiness and flourishing and satisfaction, or Christ rotted in the tomb. And he's just one more false promise that we foolishly hoped in for happiness. Either one report or the other. And so let's look at this text considering these two reports. The report of the soldiers and the report of the women. Let's begin by looking at the report of the soldiers. Consider a chilling scene from Anthony Doerr's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See. The novel takes place during World War II, and as a Nazi officer tells one of the main characters, a young German boy named Werner, you know the great lesson of history? We act in our own self-interest. Of course we do. Name me a person or a nation who does not. The trick is figuring where your interests are. This, of course, is a rather dim view of things. We don't like it. We don't want it to be true. It doesn't align with our deepest intuitions about the way we think reality should be, and even perhaps the way reality is in its best moments. There has to be something deeper than bare self-interest. All the same, perhaps we think that self-interest is exactly why Matthew would be tempted to prevent, present the soldiers in just these terms. If Matthew is lying, then yes, what better way to combat and to mock and to vilify and undo the reports of the soldiers than to say that the soldiers gave in to self-interest? In his own self-interest, perhaps, Matthew falsely claims that the soldiers gave in to self-interest. Matthew defames them by saying that they turned their back on what really happened for the sake of money. Matthew would lead us to believe that they were presented with a choice by the chief priests. Either hold to the truth of what happened and to your duties and responsibilities as a soldier, or... Let go of the truth and your duties for the sake of money. Just take the money and say that the disciples stole the body away while you had fallen asleep. If you hold to the truth, you'll just be back to guarding some other contested place in the fringes of the Roman Empire. Who wants that? But if you take the money, who knows how much your life could change? Who knows what you could buy? Who knows the prestige you could acquire, the positions you could afford, the privileges you could purchase? So it's up to you. Either hold to the truth and suffer, and and certainly we as the chief priests will make you suffer more, or take the money and do something for yourself. Do something in your best self-interest. If Matthew was making this up, this is exactly what he would write about the soldiers. But we have to ask ourselves an important question. If Matthew is making up this story, if Matthew is making up this narrative, what other narrative can we appeal to? What other narrative is there? What other story is there to make sense of human life in our present condition? Again, think about that first report, the tragic situation of being the fittest species, 
and so the ever restless and inconsolable species. Think about its connection to self-interest. For instance, philosopher Charles Taylor, he points out that the modern West finds itself in a very strange position. Never before have we more forcefully advocated justice and universal benevolence, but at the same time, never have we been able, less able, to give any substantial reason for why we should be just and benevolent. Our metaphysics, what we think reality is, and our ethics, what we should do, well, they're torn completely asunder. Without God, the universe is only a mere accident. Without God, we are only a mere accident. Without God, the only reason we are here is that our ancestors got the best of weaker species. We're only here by a meaningless and accidental process that culminated in the strong eating the weak. And yet somehow, we believe we have a moral and ethical obligation to serve and to love and to seek justice for the weak and the marginalized. Somehow we feel obligated to do something that stands completely against how we got here in the first place. Somehow we believe that we are meant to go against the very fitness that got humanity to where it is. However, by this report, the soldiers simply did what any human should do. They perceived what was in their best interest, and they did it. What will put them in the best situation to put themselves above others, especially other human competitors? What will put them in the fittest position to take the money and to stay on the good side of the chief priests? Matthew here is only telling the story that both we and the soldiers are telling ourselves. And money in particular has a special place to play in this story, in the story we tell about ourselves. Political scientist Jason Blakely is helpful here. He tells us that the economic market has become one of the key, one of the chief ways that we understand all of reality. It's even come to define our personhood. Blakely tells us that as we apply economic theory to all of life, we come to see humans, we come to see ourselves as, quote, self-interested preference maximizers. With this lens, as we look upon the world, We simply see countless individuals working to maximize their own self-interest at the expense of others. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and so we ourselves better follow suit. Blakely points out that there's no real place for virtue here, no place for sacrifice, no place for service. And anything that seems virtuous or noble, it's only a cover, it's only a veneer. When the person is wholly understood as a self-interest maximizer, well, then no one can do anything for any reason apart from self-interest, even if it looks otherwise. To again quote Doors' Nazi officer, the trick is figuring out where your interests are. Any nights spent in service at the homeless shelter, well, those are no more noble, no more virtuous than a night spent at the casino. These volunteers, they just prefer the feelings that come with serving more than the feelings that come with other kinds of activities. In the end, they're just as self-interested as anybody else. And so we can all just do what we want. We should just do what we want. And besides, the invisible hand of the market will work all of our self-interest for good anyway. In response, Blakely issues a strong warning here. 
He says that interpreting our personhood as mere maximizers of self-interest changes us. Blakely writes the following. In the 1990s, the psychologist Philip Cushman had reported increasing cases of a new kind of empty consumer, sorry, a consumer self showing up in clinical practice. This self viewed all social relations as economic market relations and all personal problems as surmountable by consuming the right products. For this kind of self, even deeply personal relationships were essentially negotiated consumption choices. And hear this, marriages, families, friendships, workplaces, schools, churches, and governments were all sites of self-interested calculations. How much more true do these words ring 30 years later? But they're not necessarily new. This is exactly what Matthew claims that the soldiers did. They weigh out everything in terms of their best self-interest as consumers. They calculate. They calculate their responsibilities to truth, to their duty, to their military oaths, to the people they are meant to serve. And all of these things are less than the things that they could buy with money. And so they're no different than what much modern economic theory tells us that we are, self-interest maximizers. Of course, I firmly believe that Matthew is telling the truth, but here's the thing. If you don't believe Matthew, you have no other story to tell. You have no other narrative than self-interest that you can appeal to to explain who we are and what we do. All that we are ultimately left with is the words of Dorr's Nazi officer. You know the great lesson of history? We act in our own self-interest. The trick is figuring out where your interests are. Again, if Matthew is lying, all we have is the following tragic report. We all act in our own self-interest, otherwise we would not be the fittest species. Nothing earthly can satisfy what you so desperately seek, otherwise we would not be the fittest species. And even if the soldiers did not lie in this case, they certainly should lie in any other case when they are offered sufficient money to do so. Otherwise, we are not the fittest species. Everything, your life, your hopes, your dreams, your accomplishment, any meaning that you think this life has, it all ends in death. But we do our best not to think about that. Otherwise, we would not be the fittest species. And so even if the soldiers were telling the truth, this is still their report. And so whether or not the soldiers lied, they, like us, are certainly acting in their own self-interest. Even if Matthew is the one lying, it all comes to the same end. Even if Matthew is lying, in another way, he is telling the truth according to this story, according to this report. What is Matthew doing? He's only acting in his own self-interest. He's elevating his own personal position above that of the soldiers. He's maximizing his benefit over theirs. Again, this is the story that we tell ourselves all the time. This is even the story that we have come to celebrate and embrace. For instance, journalist Tara Isabella Burton, she recounts the basic message that she hears again and again in exercise fitness classes throughout New York City. She hears, this is your time. Don't focus on anybody else. 
Other people take away your energy. Just focus on yourself. We shouldn't be surprised. Isn't this precisely what you would expect from the most competitive species, the most strong eating the weak species, the fittest species? It seems that we're finally going back to our roots where we're sort of complementing our paleo diet with a kind of paleo ethics. But of course, it's the firm conviction of the church that Matthew and the women are proclaiming the very thing that happened on that first Easter morning. And that brings us to our second and final point, the report of the women. The report of the women is very different than what they first expected. They came to the tomb expecting to find Christ still there. They expected to find Christ rotting, decaying, succumbing to death and its destruction. They came to the tomb telling themselves the report of the soldiers. Here in this tomb lies one more false promise. Jesus was supposed to be different. He was supposed to be the thing that we were looking for, hoping in, trusting in. But just like everything else, he did not deliver on the happiness and the joy and the satisfaction he promised. Here lies Jesus, and with him lies my last hope for a joy and love and flourishing that this world cannot take away. Jesus is dead. And the very souls of the women, the souls of all of us, die with him. In 2001, the philosopher Philippa Foote, she she wrote the following in her journal, reflecting upon the death of her good friend and fellow philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe. And Anscombe had died 10 days earlier. Foote writes, Elizabeth died on January 5th. Everything is done for the first time in the different world that is without her. Everything is done for the first time in the different world that is without her. If you've ever lost a loved one, you know this truth. When they die, the world itself becomes a different place. Everything now happens in a different world from the world that you shared together with them. The world has changed. We feel the world is worse. And now, Foote herself has since passed, making the world an even more different place, and we too shall pass. So will everyone that we love. There is nothing that stays. There is nothing that we keep. It all falls through our fingers. There is no true happiness possible because each day takes you closer to saying goodbye to those who are dearest to you. If the tomb is closed, if Jesus still lies within its stone walls, then you will lose absolutely everything. You will die, as did Christ, and that will be the end. And everything you've ever done and hoped for and dreamed will die with you. You can't take your job or relationships or money or house or connections or physical beauty with you. They, like you, will simply cease to exist. You will lose all things. You will lose all of those you love. You will lose your own very life. The world will be different. The world will be worse. And certainly, this means that true joy and satisfaction are always beyond our grasp. We're back again to being the fittest and the most tragic of species. 
If we're able to be truly satisfied and happy, then that thing that fulfills our deepest desires, it can't be something that the world can take away. How can you enjoy something if you know that it will soon be gone? It's like trying to enjoy those last few minutes of sleep when you know that the alarm clock is going to go off in five minutes. It simply can't be done. And so, even theoretically speaking, if we did find that one thing, that one thing that actually did deliver on the joy that it promised, we still couldn't really enjoy it. We still couldn't really rest in it. Like everything else, it would just be taken away by death. If we actually had that one thing, we'd still lose it, and so we never really had it in the first place. We never really enjoy it because we'd fear and anticipate and dread our eventual and inevitable losing of it. However, we have to ask ourselves, can Foote's words be rightly said of Christ? Can we ever say everything is done for the first time in the different world that is without Jesus? This was the sentiment of the women as they approached the tomb. They came to the tomb with the same report as the soldiers, but then something changes. The earth itself quakes, and the angel of the Lord meets them. He tells them good news of great joy that makes that quake seem only like a small tremor. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said. Remember the Christian report on the present human condition as expressed by Lewis. If I feel in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If the tomb is open, then the way to this other world is open. If Christ is raised from the dead, then death is not the last word. If Christ has been resurrected never to die again, if Christ has been resurrected never to suffer death or sickness or illness or corruption or any death-dealing enemy, then that means resurrection life is offered to us. If Christ defeated death, then yes, we are made for another world, a world without death, a world where we really can have and hold and enjoy the desires of our heart without end, without death, forever. If the tomb is open, the very way to this new world is open. If the tomb is open, then one day we can say, everything is done for the first time in the different world that is without death. But is this enough? Even if we had all the good things of this world, Lewis warns us, it would still not be enough. Yes, we must be able to have forever that which we most desire. But deep down, it's not the things of this world that we most desire. Again, this is what both reports tell us. Both reports assume that nothing that you can earn here or now will give you the satisfaction that you desire. This is their shared baseline. And so what are we to make of this? Well, recall the rest of Lewis's words. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, if they don't satisfy this desire, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
And St. Augustine is, is helpful here. He, he gives us a helpful image, showing us how the good things of this world, why not satisfying us fully, point us to the one who alone can, the one who is the real thing. Augustine compares creation to an engagement ring. He writes, Suppose a man should make a ring for his betrothed, and she should love the ring more wholeheartedly than the betrothed who made it for her. Certainly let her love the gift. But what if she should say, the ring is enough, I don't want to see his face again. Creation, all the good things of this world, they're like an engagement ring that God gives us to pledge himself to us. The bride who desires to be with her groom, she will never be satisfied with the ring itself. She will delight in the ring. She will take joy in the ring. She will take confidence and assurance in the ring. But the ring is not meant to satisfy her desire for the one that she loves. If there is such a thing as the resurrection, then she can have the ring forever. But if there is such a thing as the resurrection of Christ, then she, the church, can have Christ, her beloved bridegroom, forever. She can have the only thing that can satisfy the deepest desires of her heart. and She can have him without any fear of losing him. The women receive the pledge. They receive the promise. Again, the angels tell them that Christ has risen. But they receive more than this pledge and promise. They receive more than the ring. We read, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What do they have? They have him. They have Jesus forever. They have their betrothed, and they are his beloved. We, the church, are his beloved. We are embraced by Christ, the Son of God himself, the very truth that makes all good things, all true things true, the very goodness that makes all good things good. He's the very beauty that makes all beautiful things beautiful. And we, like these women, are the church, his very bride. And this is a completely different story. Unlike the report of the soldiers, it doesn't end in death. Unlike the report of the soldiers, this does give us that one thing, the one person who can and will satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. Unlike the report of the soldiers, this is not a story about self-interest. This is not a story of the strong devouring the weak, but of God, the very strongest becoming weak and being devoured by death for us. This is the story of God become human, of Christ putting aside his own self-interest to suffer death so that he might defeat it for us. This is the story of Christ taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our own self-interest so that he might bring us back to himself and that he might do so forever and without death. Again, Dorr's Nazi officer tells us, you know the great lesson of history? We act in our own self-interest. This is not the women's report. What do they tell us? Do you know the great lesson of history? God himself has gone to the greatest lengths of sacrificing and suffering so that he might bring you back to himself. Do you know the great lesson of history? It is life and love and joy and goodness and delight and happiness and flourishing. This is the report of the women. 
Again, Lewis tells us, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And Lewis himself gives us a picture that captures this other world, this restored world, this perfected heaven and earth for which we are meant. As Lewis writes of the heroes in the very final chapter of his Narnia series, all their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover in the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And so, friends, let us look forward to that day not long from now, I promise you, when the risen Christ himself our betrothed, will come to us, either rousing us from our daily routines or stirring us from the grievous graves by saying, my dear, my beloved, awake, it's time to come home. And let us respond like the Narnians. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. This is the report of Easter, of the women, of the church, of the angel, of Christ himself. This is the great lesson of history and the only possibility of human joy and happiness. And so what else can we report to the world except he is not here? For he has risen, just as he said. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that Christ has risen. We thank you, Lord, that you are committed to bringing about this new, restored, perfected world. Most of all, we thank you that you have given us yourself, the greatest and deepest desire of our heart. We can never lose. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.